This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. I'm Natalie Moore, and this is Reset. We've got a treat for you today. We're talking with author Margot Jefferson. The Chicago native is a prolific critic and writer who released her first memoir, Negro Land, in 2015. Her second memoir, Constructing a Nervous System, came out in April. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner and has been lauded as one of the most nuanced thinkers on race, class, and feminism working today. Constructing a Nervous System is not your typical memoir. We'll get into that in a moment. Margot Jefferson joins us now. Did you plan on writing this memoir when you were writing Negro Land? Because Constructing a Nervous System feels as if it is a companion. You know, I think I, I think it is. That's true. But I was not thinking of it when I was writing Negro Land. People would sometimes say to me, uh, particularly when I finished it, well, you're going to write uh, the next volume. And I would say, no, no, no. And then I would say, well, not in a way that kind of chronologically or or just totally logically um, follows Negro Land. I, it, it, it will connect with, but I, I'm going to want to go in some different directions, but I don't know what they are yet. Well, let's talk about the title. You're disassembling and reassembling yourself. What does that mean for a memoir and criticism to merge? Well, what it means, at least to me, is that um, the the intimacies, the the very personal materials of memoir, you know, your family story, <laughs> confessions, you know, revelations of private emotions— they're there, but they are attached every bit as much to all of these these art and media objects, a television show, um, a record, um, old, you know, an artist we love, even something we've come to think of as trashy, but that we felt very influenced by. Um, I wanted all of those kinds of, of experiences to be um, as, uh, as intensely felt as, um, you know, the more traditional, let's say, psychological, geographical material is, and to be felt through, um, through race, through gender, through family. And you... So criticism becomes very emotionally, intimately charged, and memoir um, takes in, um, you know, all of this material um, around us that we tend to think of as culture, as sociology, as, as history, rather than as personal. But it's charged with the totally personal. You've written that you wanted to make your way to the center of American culture and find ways to decenter it. Why? Well, 
this has a lot to do with, with history. Um, I came um, of age in the 60s and 70s. I entered high school in um, 1960, college in 64, and I was a young woman uh, making her way uh, in, in the 70s. That means I entered, was part of, got to witness, uh, you know, movements from anti-war, civil rights, civil rights, moving to black power, feminism um, coming, um, the new left, um, uh, LGBTQ, uh, you know, all of that was the stuff um, of the culture in, you know, in, in an uproar and changing. And I wanted um, to be part of all the ways that that changed the um, the arts, too, and how we feel and think. New writers, new canons, um, you know, new, new narratives, new stories, um, new uses of language. And that's what I meant about, and that, you know, you, that, that's, the, that's the center of the culture, but it decenters, it decenters because it was new. It was, it was throwing challenges um, at, the, um, at the traditions that we'd all grown up with culturally, you know, the hierarchies. Early on in the book, you write, you must be stranded between blues singer Gertrude Ma Rainey and writer Sylvia Plath. How does that feel? Well, I was, it was partly a joke. I was saying, oh, are you really stranded? Um, <laughs> are you feel you're stranded sometimes? But actually, um, I feel um, that's part of, I guess, how one reconstructs the nervous system. First, these, these oppositions, they're, they're racial, they're social, they're cultural, they're class. Um, you know, first they can feel, oh, like uh, I'm, being, I'm being forced, I'm being divided between the two. You know, they're black and white. And then, you know, you start living with them, and I, I end up merging Ma Rainey's lines with Sylvia Blatt's. Um, so all sorts of new, new possibilities, new combinations can become possible. I mean, that's that's also how you kind of construct a different a different nervous system for yourself. And along with that, you revisit how you have felt about certain writers or musicians uh, when you were younger, and one of them is Ella Fitzgerald and her oh, femininity, um, and yeah. how you felt as a child. Um, tell us about that. Well, you know, she was she was such. Um, you know, with that light, beautiful, airy voice and that imaginativeness, she was always what one would think of as a kind of icon of um, of femininity at its best, improvisational charm, <laughs> surprise, um, lyricism and wit. Uh, in fact, I think I compare her to some of those um, wonderful um, actresses in romantic comedies. But, you know, she could be she could be mournful and melancholy too. The problem for me, as um, um, oh, as a vain little girl, as a vain <laughs> and aspiring little girl, um, with all the codes, um, rather restrictive um, in terms of class and race, those codes and behavior of um, what was considered feminine desirability and charm, and even um, yeah, yeah, an authority. Um, her appearance threw me off. She was overweight, um, particularly for, you know, for black women in those days to be overweight. That was like a, a stereotype. Mm -hmm. um, she, 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 she dressed so nicely, but, you know, she could have been your school librarian or your music teacher. You know, I wanted, I got everything from her singing that I didn't get from her, 
from her appearances um, as, as, again, this vain little girl. Um, I guess I wanted a kind of Lena Horne glamour, right? And there she was, you know, with this genius akin to, you know, men, men didn't have to worry about their looks in those ways. And she had that kind of, you know, here I am, I'm going straight through it, genius. But she was still, um, you know, surrounded by, weighed down um, by all, you know, all sorts of expectations and I would say condescensions. And as a growing girl, I was participating in that. Um, you're also fascinated by black male performers, and you write like a personal ad running through my head. <laughs> One of those black male performers you write about is Ike Turner. Um, tell us more about why you wanted to focus on him, and were you nervous about including him in this book? Um, I was, um, indeed, uh, particularly since um, when Tina Turner's uh, memoir came out uh, some years ago, I reviewed it rhapsodically for the nation, and quite appropriately, it was very hard um, on Ike Turner. What what happens, you know, as I thought through, you know, all of these these black male performers, and, you know, my generation was soul music and, and R&B and rock and roll. Um, so, I, you know, I knew I'd have to dwell there. I found that my early adolescent um, even pre-adolescent memories of of his power as a performer, along with Tina's, um, they 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 wouldn't leave me. Um, now, you know, when you're a critic, you're also some kind of susceptible fan. Um, and I thought, well, if it won't go away, then I need to look at it because you know there's part of the appeal of so many. Um, black male R&B and soul singers is this mixture of seductiveness and danger and roadrunner and, you know, tender lover. And I thought, well, you know, leave out the (laughs) the tender and seduction (laughs) uh, in that way. But, But there he is, and he was important to the music. Um, And he helped in the initial stages. He was a talent scout, you know, he helped record B.B. King. He found, helped find, helped find Tina Turner. So I thought, okay, go with it, explore it. Um, I will also add the little personal touch. Um, when my sister and I were first hearing Ike and Tina Turner, we were, as with every other singers we heard, um, trying to imitate them. And she was all, she always got to be Tina, and I always had to be Ike and the Iket. So I was paying real attention to him. You know, how, well, of course, the, I, of course, the big sister, yeah. of course, the big sister got to be Tina. <laughs> of course she did. Of course she did. You know that. So. Um, well, I was also surprised that you take on being Crosby as an alter ego in the book. Well, you know, there are there are demonic um, alter egos as well. And he is a kind of um, a white minstrel show alter ego, meaning that persona of his, you know, the movie, the movie from the movies, from the records. So it's so full of entitlement and, and smooth arrogance. Um, and that kind of fascinated me, you know, it's, 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 uh, uh, a, a entertainment form of utter white male privilege and calm. And so I thought, okay, let's just 
Why, again, as with Ike Turner, why does this interest me so much? I know all the ways in which he's cornball and, and <laughs> insufferable, and I got to, okay, it's, it's the playing out with a kind of minstrel showboating of total calm, um, calm and um, full of itself uh, entitlement. Constructing a nervous system feels like you were taking writing risks, and it feels like poetry and staccato, like jazz. Thank you. (laughs) Um, What style or genre were you going for? Oh, my first thought was really, let me try to do things um, that I haven't yet done or that I started to do with Negroland but haven't pursued, like, um, like dialogue, like changes in um in tone in um point of view in jump jumps in time those aren't the kinds of things that generally find their way into criticism so first of all i was you know playing with different ways of of telling a story and of revealing a self um you know then really what 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 guided kept guiding me was i thought in some ways it's going to have to be it's a, its own form because I'm I'm trying to merge or have a constant close dialogue between two different forms. You know, one of which focuses on um, on on art, on the on things of the in the outside world, and filters them through um, you know an eye that isn't confessing anything. The other of which you know is saying the only reason for you to read this is because you want to know about me. So I kept having to find ways to redefine me and, and, to, and to jump and juxtapose. That's all for today's episode of Reset. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations like this one. And we love getting feedback from you. So let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a review and rating. I'm Natalie Moore. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you back here tomorrow for our weekly news recap. See you then. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.